I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I've talked about it before on this show and in other places as well. I had a student my first year teaching who walked into my classroom, a self-proclaimed atheist, didn't believe in God, wanted nothing to do with theology. I have no idea where that student is now. We did not stay in touch. He eventually left the school entirely. But I do sometimes think about him. Namely, I wonder if he still doesn't believe in God. And I think that not because I feel like I failed in converting him to belief by any means, but I wonder because a lot of times, and I say this in a very general way, but a lot of times people who proclaim no belief in God eventually, intellectually, actually do arrive at belief in God. And there's a reason why. This is, of course, part of a conversation. It's because of witness. It's because of dialogue. It's because of reasoned and seasoned debate. And today's guest, Leah Sargent, has a story that tells how one arrives into faith from a place of no belief whatsoever, what that looks like from an intellectual perspective, what it means to really grapple with God's existence, and why a person would not only convert, but then begin to live life completely and totally in pursuit of relationship with creator of the universe. When we're doing this entire faith and science series, we were planning out the content. I knew Leah was somebody I wanted to talk to because her book, which was written through Ave Maria Press about her conversion and the story behind that tells a really unique story. And on today's episode, she really kind of gives us a rundown of what happened and why and and what inspired her to live a life of faith, not simply because somebody looked at her and said, hey, Jesus is real, and she just accepted it because of, but because of, of conversation, because of seasoned and reasoned debate, because she wasn't afraid to dig into an idea. And sometimes in the conversation surrounding faith and science, we avoid digging into ideas. In this podcast, today's episode, this conversation really digs into why having those conversations is so important. Why debating those issues and coming from a place of, of reason is good. Leah's genius. She's, she's brilliant. She's an incredible writer. She has wonderful things to say on social media and otherwise and has a great insight to offer. And I'm really, really excited that we are ending our season with her because this conversation about her conversion from atheism to Catholicism is both inspiring and challenging. And I think the perfect way to conclude a season digging into the how and the why of faith and science. We hope that you go and find all of the great content that we are creating for Ave Explores Faith and Science, the series, of course, ending now, but so many things that you can go back and dig into, all of it available over at AveMariaPress.com. So click at the top on the series Ave Explores Faith and Science, and you'll find all of that, and I hope you enjoy it. For now, we hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Leah Sargent about her conversion from atheism to Catholicism. Well, Leah, thanks for joining us on Ave Explores. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do. Well, so I live in New Jersey. I work at a Catholic ministry. I'm a convert for, I guess it's about eight years now. So I've probably just reached the age of reason, which I guess <laughs> makes, that's good news for your interview. <laughs> you know, I grew up as an atheist and I started getting interested in Catholicism in an antagonistic way in college and ultimately came into the church the year after I graduated. I wrote one book that's primarily about my conversion, uh, which is Arriving at Amen. Um, and my second book, Building the Benedict Option, is about growing deeper in community, uh, creating thicker Christian community wherever you are. 
I want to go into the story of growing up an atheist. Because I grew up Catholic. Is growing up as an atheist, it just means that there like is no religion, or was there like an ardent discussion about there being no religion? Or so so because I know that I've read Jen Fulweiler's conversion story, and I know like her version of it. It seems like there's a lot of different ways that this can happen. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, in my case, you know, my family wasn't religious, and we weren't you know religious from the beginning. You know, we still had a Christmas tree because we're American, right? But. Uh, <laughs> But no religious practice. And I didn't really know anyone personally who I knew of as religious. I don't think it's impossible there was anyone religious at my school, uh, but I never knew anyone where their relationship with God was part of what I knew about them. Mm. And personally, that meant a lot of that my exposure to religious practice or what it meant for someone to be religious came through places where religion intruded on my life or on other people's lives. So I was a reader of the New Atheists. I had an atheist blog myself, and I was following stories about prayer in schools, controversy over science, education. You know, I did an expose for my high school paper about how the toy drive we did was an evangelical organization, Samaritan's Purse's toy drive, which I thought was really weird for a public school to be doing, especially in my case, a heavily Jewish public school, where it didn't seem plausible that most of the families wanted their toys to be given to someone to try and pitch them on Christianity. So I'd say I felt fairly hostile to it because I thought of religion as something that stood in people's way from knowing the world as it was. Mm. That's a very, I would say, scientistic or scientific, scientism perspective, whatever phrase you would want to use. So in that antagonism, was there a moment where, I mean, everybody's conversion story kind of has the moment where they start to recognize, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've bought into something that's not actually good for me. So tell me a little bit about that jump and that crossing of the bridge. I think thinking that I was wrong, you know, came later. But for me, the really, the moment that made me need to think more about this was that I went to Yale and I joined the Yale Political Union, which was a debate group that was a little unusual. So it wasn't debate where you've got people debating on randomly chosen sides competing for how well they can make an argument. It was a debate where you only argue things you actually think are true. Oh, wow. Um, and no one gives you points. You just try and convince other people to change the way they live their life, like in real life. Yeah, yeah. And so this meant I met smart Christians for what felt like the first time in my life. So I had these friends who I really respected, who had read interesting things I hadn't, who challenged me in different ways, and weirdly were Christian. And many of them were Catholic and Orthodox specifically. And that didn't lead me to think, wow, maybe I'm wrong about this. But I did realize that lots of the kind of debunkings of Christianity I'd heard of didn't fit my friends. You know, you can go up to a Catholic and say, you know, well, like, how can you say the Bible answers people's questions when everyone reads it and comes up with different answers, you know? And a Catholic will say, well, we really don't recommend you just read the Bible all by yourself and try and guess what it means. We have an entire magisterium and a way of interpreting it, right? So it's not that I thought, well, that's a knockdown answer for me, but it really got me to the point of saying, I don't have answers for these people. And because they're my friends and because I like them, I want to help them stop being Christian, so I'd better learn more about it so I can talk them out of their faith. Mm. And that didn't work. <laughs> it didn't ultimately, but you know, this is a big part of what our debate culture was. Like, how do you show that you love someone? You try and get them to stop believing things they believe in. <laughs> you read whole books for the sake of doing this is our love language. So you're reading these whole books, you know, it's kind of where it did start a little more for me. So I picked up uh, Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm off of the table from the Campus Christian Ministry that just had a free book sign. And then you had to get all the way up to the table before you're like, these are all books about Christianity, right? But I read that in the hopes of getting better at arguing. And that was a 
again, it didn't feel like a turning point in the moment, but it was a really important moment in retrospect because what C.S. Lewis is doing at the beginning of Mere Christianity is he's just making the case for objective morality. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to make the case for God and for Christ uh, and other things. But this was actually one of the sticking points in my debates with my fellow atheists some of the time. I've got a math background. I'm not a mathematician, but I love mathematics. So math is something that's objectively true. Mm -hmm. There's debate about this, but I'm right. Math is something that's (laughs) objectively true. It's out there in the universe. And you can think of what mathematicians do is mathematicians don't create anything. Mm -hmm. They discover it. A mathematician is like an archaeologist, you know, sorting through the sand to pull out proofs that are already there. Mm -hmm. You just are finding the structure of the world. And people if they're really into math, might give you a hard time about this. But mostly people accept that this is how math works, in part because it feels bigger to them when they're learning it and struggling with it. They know there's something out there they're trying to grasp. But there's more debate about whether morality is the same kind of thing. Is morality objective and transcendent, really, in this way? Something we can explore and ask questions about and discover, but not something we can create or alter at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought from the beginning, you know. And to be honest, I thought that's so at the core of my being, I have the most trouble arguing for it because I feel like I'm stuck arguing with someone who's saying like, well, we can't know for sure about the materiality of the world around us. I'm like, yeah, but you signal when you change lanes, don't you? You don't think you'll pass through other cars or that your body is an illusion. Like, yeah, but we can't be sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you do with that, right? If someone denies kind of the basic ground of experience, there's a limit to how far you can get with rational argument. That's how I felt about how people talked about morality if they said it was socially constructed or mm-hmm. evolutionarily determined. First of all, Lewis says no one believes this. You know, and if you meet someone who claims to, you just cut in front of them in line and listen to how <laughs> fast the words unfair comes out right. of their mouth. But he kind of goes through a little bit his argument. So I felt this real sense of kinship with C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just slice that part of the book out with a razor blade and make it my atheist evangelizing <laughs> tract for objective morality. And I wasn't sold on the rest of the book, but I had the feeling of finding a friend. Mm. And so you find this friend in C.S. Lewis. What happens next? I mean, it wasn't an immediate run to a baptismal font at that point. Like there must have been some more digging in and figuring out this objective morality is or isn't actually what I want to live my life with. Yeah, I think one of the things that kind of happened is Lewis underlined what I was already learning a bit from my friend, which is that you could be a Christian and care about truth and really be seeking it in a systematic way. And you could do all those things and be a Christian in good faith. Mm -hmm. So C.S. Lewis made Christianity seem reasonable, even if I didn't think it was true. Mm. And then the next book I read that was kind of the next fruitful step for me was G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And if Lewis is kind of, you know, the good cop here, right? (laughs) Chesterton is the crazy cop. Yep. Lewis is always making the case, you know, this is pretty reasonable. You'll find you believe most of it already. Maybe you don't understand the implications, but here you are. And Chesterton just bursts through a window. It's like, at the heart of Christianity is paradox. (laughs) It's red blood-dripping justice and white streams of mercy all at the same time. (laughs) And if you just read Lewis alone, this isn't in any way a knock on him because he's telling an important part of the truth. You might think, wow, Christians, I can peaceably coexist with them. You know, I may disagree, <laughs> but they seem reasonable. They're seeking good things. And Chesterton just like bursts in again. Is like, no, you can't. It's a wild, controversial claim about the world. You have to decide right now, is it true or if it's false? And if it's true, you have to go get baptized. If it's false, you have to spend your whole life trying to destroy it. And you're like, 
Okay. I guess those are the <laughs> options. Yes. <laughs> and so you chose an option. But not initially. You know, okay. and this this was the longer period where I was stuck. You know, I, I spent a while kind of basically stuck at a point where starting from where I was, I had enough of a sense of how Christianity could work if it were true. Mm. I no longer thought it was self-refuting or that any Christian who seriously inquired into Christianity should come out the other side an atheist. Mm, mm. What it felt like to me, if I'm going to pull again from mathematical metaphors, is a bit like the difference between Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry. And that just turns on what happens to parallel lines. You know, are parallel lines what we're used to from math class, you know, in elementary school? Parallel lines don't cross, right? That's life on a flat sheet of paper on a plane. Or do they cross sometimes and you're getting to different kinds of geometry. You know, on a sphere, a triangle can be made of all right angles on mm-hmm. a sphere just because the world is bent and there's more room for it. They're both true. It just matters. It's two different worlds you could be living in and you only know which by kind of going around and measuring triangle angles. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was. I thought, well, Christianity, you know, it could be true. I don't think it is. It's kind of coherent. It holds together. It's just describing a world I don't think is real. Mm. And on the other hand is my atheism, which I also think has no contradictions in it. It doesn't always cover everything I want it to cover. And that big sticking point was the question of, if morality is objective, how do we come to know it? How do we make claims about it? When I talked about the material world really existing, I can tell you how I perceive it and interact with it. I look at it with my eyes. I touch it with my fingers. And at first, people didn't know about the optic nerve and that you don't need to to see. But the more we inquired into it, the more you could actually diagram and dissect how it is we come to experience the world. Mm -hmm. Now, no one's dissected the conscience in that way. So I kind of kept running into this problem when I'd be trying to talk people into it. Like, well, you know, there's no real thing as morality. I'm like, look, if you'd sound pretty dumb if you said there's no real thing as sight just because you hadn't taken apart in the eyeballs yet. Mm -hmm. Give me the benefit (laughs) of the doubt. (laughs) But it felt frustrating to bounce off that. So that felt like the biggest project my atheism needed to solve, this question of with what am I perceiving the moral law? Mm. And so on the one hand, I had, you can think of kind of an intricate piece of clockwork that was dead, the Catholic Church, coherent, interesting, sometimes write about things unexpectedly, but I don't think it's true at the very heart of it. I don't think there's a God. On the other hand, you had this kind of patchwork sale of my atheism where I've put together all the pieces I'm sure of. There's not a single concept in it I feel is untrustworthy, but it doesn't do everything I need it to do Mm. yet. I just figured I'd spend the rest of my life working on it. Because if it's true, you know, just like in mathematics, you might not know every piece of the truth at the beginning, but if you keep on going and looking for it, you can't go wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When did that patchwork quilt of a sale start to rip, start to fade You've got the intellectual part of it. It seems like you're digging through. I mean, was this keeping you up at night? Were you having conversations with your family? Like, how are the people around you reacting? Well, one of the hard things was that I was single at the time and I felt weird about dating because it just seemed possible I might stop being an atheist, though I didn't think so. I was confused about what to, what is it wrong to date other atheists if I might be at risk of becoming Catholic? Mm. I had already dated Catholics and I'd broken up over remained an atheist, so that didn't seem any good. So I just, I wanted this to resolve. I didn't think I was going to become Catholic, but it just seemed threatening enough. I wanted to be able to relinquish the question, to have it answered more definitively one way or another. And ultimately, I'd graduated by this point. I was back up at Yale for a debate reunion. 
And when we get together, we do very normal things. We hold debates, right? As you might expect. (laughs) And then we toast where we have a big cup and we pass it around and we sing songs and we put the cup on our heads. I just had this weird experience at the debate, you know, that I didn't think at the time, you know, this is from the Holy Spirit. But during the debate, which wasn't specifically about religion, I just kept feeling like if you came into this room and you didn't know about religion, Mm -hmm. if you were from Mars, and you were just trying to sort people based on how much they were appealing to the same things, how much their ideas sounded like each other, that I sounded like a Christian. Mm. And that didn't mean that all the Christians were on the same side of the debate. But when they talked about kind of the anthropology, like what, what do these questions turn on? Even when they disagreed, they were talking about the same kind of world and just disagreeing about the implications. I found this unsettling. Mm. And then at toasting, as people are all going around and making sincere toasts, silly toasts, counter toasts, where you're trying to refute someone else's toast in your (laughs) toast, I had the impulse to toast the Nicene Creed and become a Christian somehow. Wow. And the cup's going around. I have to figure out what I'm going to do. And I kind of was like, what should I do? What does this mean? And I, I went through a couple points. I'm like, well, thing one. I'm not 100% sure I know the Nicene Creed by heart, so this is a silly idea. (laughs) Thing two, toasting the Nicene Creed, it seems like a very kind of aesthetically debate thing, more than it seems like a Christian thing specifically. Uh, That's not actually how you convert. And if I'm going to become Christian, I should do it in a Christian way, not a weird debate culture toasting way. The Yale way. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thing three, I don't believe in God, you know? So I'm like, wait, thing three should have been thing one. I yeah. should just, you know, I really should have started there. So I gave some, you know, really lousy toast from being distracted. I was like, this is, this is troubling. And I didn't really have anything clear to do with that feeling until I came back for another debate reunion three months later, because as I said, we're crazy people, right? Like four reunions a year. <laughs> you just enjoy each other. Exactly. And so I had the same experience, basically the exact same. We were debating resolved, nationalized the curriculum, which really is a prudential matter. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not something where it's like definitely all the Catholics on this side and everyone else on right. the other. But I still had that feeling of I'm on their team. This is so weird. So I, I skipped toasting. I was like, this is, it was lousy last time. I don't want to do this again. And I grabbed a friend of mine who I knew was Lutheran and wanted to be a priest when he grew up and graduated. And he's actually, he became Episcopalian. Obviously, I'm still praying for one step further. He's (laughs) getting close to ordination now. But I figured if he wanted to be a priest, he should be able to handle people just throwing theological questions at Mm -hmm, him. mm -hmm. So we just went to talk about all this. And I've kind of outlined for him what I've been talking to you about, that sale versus the clockwork mechanism. And we were talking about that question of how do you come to know what morality is? And I told him what I'd been kind of turning over as my best hypothesis to date which is kind of a very platonic hypothesis. So Plato talks about, and I'm going to very much telescope (laughs) his argument, but, you know, how do we come to know the concept of justice? And, you know, he might say, if you were treating this important matter casually, well, you know, I go out for a walk, someone kick a puppy, and I see someone defraud an old lady. And these two things are not like each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I see puppy kicking, and old lady defrauding, but I see that there's something that connects them. I can see this overlap, and it's that they're participating in the form of injustice or cruelty. And I found this kind of explanation satisfactory about math, right? Like, I see my two sneakers, and I see my two gloves. Like, sneakers and gloves, 
what do they have to do with each other, except that somehow they both share this mysterious quality of two-ness that's mm-hmm. above sneakers and shoes. I mean, from there, you can get to numbers and number theory. And from there, you can get anywhere you need to in mathematics if you just take long enough. Mm-hmm. So I found that pretty satisfactory for math. How do I come to know something that's transcendent that isn't just about shoes and gloves? It's about something purer than that. I felt like that ladder of abstraction worked. But you can hear that it's a much more obvious matching. You can put the shoes and gloves next to each other. And it's very hard to get the puppy kicker and the lady defrauder to stand next to each other and match up in that same way. So I went through all this for Ben, you know, and he was like, okay, like if that's the explanation you don't like, you know, it doesn't seem like there's that much point in rehashing it, you know, or trying to fix it. Just keep working on it. Come up with something new. How do you know objective morality mm-hmm. if it's not through that kind of ladder of abstraction? Mm-hmm. And then I just said, without really pausing to think about it, I don't know. I guess morality just loves me or something. <laughs> and there it is. You know, and there it was. And so, you know, I even like, I think the next thing I said was like, yo, hang on, hang on. I have to, like, just because I say things doesn't mean they're true. I have to think about it. The really the core of it is that's what I think, mm-hmm. you know, that if I think of morality as being objective, being real in that sense that mathematics is real, it's out there, it's able to be found in some sense. But unlike mathematics, it's not as clear how I build a ladder up to it. Mm-hmm. But I have it. I have it without any explanation of how, by my own efforts, I went and seized it. Then somehow it's offered itself to me. Mm. Mm. But once you're talking that way, you know, I'm not talking anymore about a big rule book in the sky, as you might think about it, because right. that's inert. That's something I go and find. I'm the active one. But if morality comes to me instead, then it's not just a rule book. It's an agent. It's a, a person in some sense. Mm-hmm. And I'd certainly read enough by this point that when I'm talking about the form of goodness itself, that's a person that -hmm. in some sense lowers itself, condescending to take on the form of a slave for my sake out of love. I know the name of the person I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm talking about Jesus. Mm. So I'm just, it's compelling. And I've read your book, so I knew some of this, but hearing you talk about it, I know that folks will be listening to this and either they've gone through something similar or they know people who have gone something similar or they're, they're sitting there thinking, okay, I want my kid to go through this again because they were either raised Catholic and have disaffiliated or they've never been involved with the faith. So I kind of want to jump ahead. You convert. We know you get to that conversion part. You choose the Catholic church, the Catholic form of the conversion into the life that you now have with a child, with a spouse, working in ministry. If you could go back to initial questioning Leah and offer a piece of advice or say like, you know, hey, in a few years, you'll be married with a child that's baptized and you'll be actually working in some capacity for the church. And, you know, talking about this to the point where people kind of know you as a very public Catholic working in publications, the whole nine yards. What would that thing that you would say to pre-conversion initially questioning Leah B? And then I'll ask my follow up. Are you asking about something I could say that would accelerate the process faster than it happened or something that would, you know, try and make it make sense to me? I think maybe the more of the make sense, because I'm, I'm getting the impression, and I think this is true of a lot of people who go through conversions, not reversions, but conversions of like this feeling of unsettledness, because you start to recognize this contradiction within yourself or within your thinking. So maybe just words of comfort that you would have even offered yourself, because I, I wouldn't change the path you've taken. I don't know if you would change the path you've taken, but 
I think all those parts of it have made you who you are and made you the writer that you are and the evangelist that you are. So what what would those words of comfort be? I don't know. I I was not so into comfort. You know, I feel like the encourage. I'm thinking of an encouraging thing. It would be like that which can be destroyed by the truth must be. Right? Like, <laughs> I told you about the debate culture. You know, we're yeah. we're not at all about comfort. We're about like the best thing in the world is holding on to the truth, and the truth is a big fire and it's burning <laughs> you the whole time, but you don't let go of it because it matters more than anything else in the world. <laughs> I love that though. I mean, like pursue it without hesitation. You can't go wrong, you know, actually seeking the truth. And this is more true as a Catholic even because we believe God is active as the truth and does try and care for and protect people who are seeking him. Mm -hmm. And as an atheist, I still think there's no better alternative than seeking the truth kind of as assiduously and as hard as you can. Uh, But you certainly can do a lot of damage along the way. Well, so let's talk about that damage then. There are folks out there, I mean, we were just chatting before we hit record about the Richard Dawkins tweet. When this airs, it'll be weeks old, and I'm sure something else will have popped up in the believers versus non-believers zeitgeist. But it seems sometimes, and I've clicked around on some of your writings on strangenotions.com, which Brandon and I talked about much earlier in the season, that we are attempting to, we want to teach the truth. In this particular season, we're talking about how we can approach the truth from both a faithful and a scientific perspective and find the bridge between the two. As a person who grew up without faith or without belief and now has it and is raising a child with it and is living it both publicly and personally, what is your hope, at least in having these conversations with non-believers, or what would be your advice in how we can talk to, say, the child who is disaffiliated or who's never wanted to affiliate or that friend that we have that we know is hungry for something, but they're not willing to admit that what they're actually hungry for is the Lord? You've walked this path, so so what would your advice be? I think the main thing is it's hard to be correct about what's going to draw people into the church. So mm-hmm. you're better off in a kind of scattershot approach, right? Mm-hmm. Offering a lot of doors that are ajar, a lot of places for your friend to ask questions, and relying more on the Holy Spirit to keep moving you towards whatever is important than thinking, I have this one great knockdown argument, mm-hmm. religious art, or one particular prayer that if I do it or if I show it to them, that's going to be compelling. Mm-hmm. You know, my mm-hmm. conversion was a relay race. So a lot of people help prepare the ground without ever being the one to sow the seed. Mm. And more people were important to my conversion than I can keep track of at this mm-hmm. point because I wasn't paying attention to those shifts as they happened. So I think the more that you really ask the intercession of the Holy Spirit, who knows better than we do what's going to make a difference, and the more you offer a lot of light invitations so that someone doesn't feel pressured to say yes to them, but mm-hmm. You know, it's everything from really saying like, hey, if you have questions about this, like, feel free to ask me explicitly about what the church teaches, which is the kind of more awkward and frightening one. And then there's, I have religious art up in my house so mm-hmm. that there's always a subtle invitation that people think Leah is Catholic. You know, I might be able to ask her this, but also that people see something that the church is, you know. And of course, then there's the the really difficult but obvious one, which is be a saint, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, <laughs> Christ in you. We just have to do all of those is the tricky thing. Like you don't know which is the one that's going to make a big difference for someone, whether it's the exposure to beauty, you know, a big no holds barred argument about truth, or just the personal witness you offer by being Christ to them and then them wondering, as people do about the saints, what is it about this person? You know, it's clearly more than just this person is a good person. There's something behind them, and I want to find that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you write about that a bit in building the Benedict option of, we know what the Benedict options argument is, but what is your argument on how to build it up? And even in welcome folks into that, that don't have the same common belief, again, not in an attempt, I'm always hesitant, at least with students, I don't want to walk into the relationship trying to convert them, but like be in relationship with them. And then they'll start to ask those, kind, just like you said, that scattershot approach. So tell us a little bit about that book that you've written. Yeah, you know, the way I define the Benedict option really is it's about being a conduit of God's grace. And if you're a conduit, you have to be open at both ends. If you're not deeply rooted in God, you have nothing to give. And so becoming deeply rooted in God can mean saying no to some things. It can mean, for example, you know, not letting your kids sign up for sports teams that are going to have them practicing on Sundays or games on Sundays, and it's going to interfere with the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. It's saying no to something in order to give a full yes to God. Mm -hmm. So we start by being rooted in God, but once you are, or the more you move into that, then the more you have to offer as you try and be open to the world and open to how God wants to use you, which may go beyond what you think of as, well, this is my really excellent skill I want to give to someone else. You know, I'm very smart. I will go tell people intellectual things. And God goes, actually, I just need you to have your car break down so that someone else can change a tire for you. And you're like, I don't want that at all, actually. That's, that's not impressive. Like, that doesn't have anything to do with what makes me special. God's like, this is going to be helpful for that person. So tough, right? So I think, you know, that sense of being open really starts in taking at least small risks. So I talk about, you know, this will be a bit more post-COVID than right now. Just being very willing to open your home to other people without mm -hmm. putting pressure on yourself to make your home tidy. Mm -hmm. It was really, especially for parents of young kids, we mostly manage to pick up all the pieces of apple my toddler scatters around. And then sometimes we find them after a day or so. Yeah. Same but here. I think for people <laughs> who are young and single, your home can just feel a little lonely or boring to you since you're in it all the time and less like something you want to invite a friend into. And the trick is all your friend wants is you. Mm -hmm. So having that experience of opening your home, offering hospitality, emboldening your friends to offer it. You know, the messier your home, the bigger the permission you're giving other people once they see that you can have people over, you know, their home, which is less of a disaster, must be all right too. And I think, you know, when it comes to creating community, a lot of it is giving ourselves permission to offer something mm. without worrying about whether it's the best thing anyone has had. We, we don't have to prove ourselves constantly in our friendships that way. Mm -hmm. And the more we live our friendships that way, as though every misstep will mean we're not living up to something, every kind of non-Instagram or Pinterest-ready meal means that our friends could have had a better experience elsewhere. Think about what that teaches us about our relationship with God and what we're teaching our friends. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the relationship where when you sin, you hide from God indefinitely, trying to make things right on your own rather than just go to confession and make things right the way he's asking you to. We always want to be able to return to God no matter how difficult things are or how messy our lives are. And we can practice by inviting our friends in and experiencing their love for us, even in moments when we're not put together in the way we want to be. Yeah. When that, I think it can foster those conversations with a person who is curious or a person who has lots of questions or a person who says, well, the church is completely and totally unreasonable because they ask you to believe X, Y, and Z, and that makes no logical sense. And it's like, well, come over, just come over and have dinner and we can talk about that or we can talk about other things. And, you know, that image of the Annunciation on the wall might spark another kind of conversation. Where can we follow you, Leah? Read these books, learn more about your work. So you can find me on my website, leahlabresco.com or on Twitter at leahlabresco. 
And my books are basically wherever you can find books. I might recommend bookshops so that you're supporting your local independent bookstore or your local Catholic bookstore because they've been having a tough time in the pandemic. Though you can also find them on Amazon, the giant conglomerate that has eaten all of our lives. (laughs) It has. There's actually an Amazon box sitting right outside my door that was just delivered a few moments ago. So guilty as charged. Uh, Leah, it was a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you too. You know, what does it boil down to? Witness, dialogue, discussion, conversation, and then a life of joy. And looking at, okay, wow, they have something. I want to know a little bit more about it. Oh, wow, they're starting to make a little bit more sense. I want to dig into that. And being unafraid to have those conversations, being unafraid to dig into it. Are you the kind of person who can? Maybe after listening to this Faith and Science series, you have a little more in your back pocket to both pull out in those larger conversations, a little more that you yourself want to go look at and learn, a little more that can perhaps help bring people to an understanding of the fullness of truth. Everything that we have created for this series and all of our Ave Explorer series is over at AveMariaPress.com. We hope that you enjoy finding all of the stuff that we've created, series on mental health, on the Blessed Virgin Mary, on social justice and, and teachings of the Catholic family and lives of the saints. We've really been digging into all of these great topics over the past couple of years. We hope that you find all of those series that we've done, mini series on Advent, on Lent, We have a a, a nice series coming out this summer where we will be highlighting a lot of our favorite content and sharing with you the very best of the best that we have created. We'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast, give it a rating and a review, share it with other people, go back and listen to your favorite episodes, tell other folks about the wonderful things that we have created. Ave Explorers exists because we like to have good conversations, that we like to tell the stories of lived faith of what's really going on, both in the life of the church and in the hearts and minds of people who just want to know Jesus a little bit more every single day. And we are so happy that you have listened. We are so happy that you are with us as we do all of this exploring. Again, rate and review, subscribe, share. We'd be so grateful. Click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find everything that we have created. And thanks so much for listening. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.